morning. It's almost okay. Good. Our uh, study in First Samuel today. There are several chapters left in the end of 1 Samuel, so I want to give you just a little bit of a review, I mean just a little bit of a, a summary of where we're at. Then I want to close it out by uh, reading you something um, that, I, that I've written, and, and the reason why is because sometimes, sometimes when I read scripture, I see things and I feel things and and I experience things, and cinematically, as these things unfold in my head, like when I read Scripture, this is what I see. And so whether or not you want me to share that with you, um, that's what we're going to do. Like you, you're gonna, I'm going to share with you, like this is what I see, this is what I feel, this is what I hear when I read through this. And so I want to share that with you, but I want to kind of give you a little bit of a summary of where we are. David has been running for his life. He has found himself in the desert. He has found himself constantly under the thumb or under the watchful eye of Saul, Israel's first king. Saul tries to kill David every single second, every single chance that he gets. Finally, David decides he's going to take the battle to Saul. And so he goes to Saul, finds Saul, who had been pursuing him. And David comes out. He and one of his friends, they steal his water jug, take his spear, and then they blast Saul's bodyguard, Abner. He said, you call yourself a man? You can't even watch over the Lord's anointed. You're going to call yourself a man? You got 3,000 troops circled up around you, and you're supposed to be watching this one guy. We snuck in, took his stuff, left. You need to start doing your job. Watch after God's anointed pretty heavy indictment of course Saul absolutely manic he goes from I want to kill David to David my son I'm so sorry I'll never do it again until like Thursday and he gets mad you know he goes after him again he's just like well that was Wednesday but Thursday like he should die you know and so finally David says, Saul's going to get me. He's going to get me. He's going to end up getting me. And what you see is, is David, I believe it's chapter 28. David has this, uh, David has this, or 20, let's see, 27. Then David said to himself, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Excuse me? He's running from Saul, and he's going to go hide among the Philistines. Now, I don't know that you need a review on who the Philistines are. But they had a great big guy on their team. Nine foot tall or so. He's about a, he's about a foot shorter than that now. Because um, David lopped his head off. His name was Goliath. Like this is the enemy, Israel's enemy, their main enemy. Like this is the people who are always, you know, trying to wage war on Israel and they're constantly fighting them over and over. And then David got to the point to where maybe it's best to hide 
with them. How bad are your circumstances when you're like, you know where I want to hide? With my enemy. Like, my life is so bad, I'd much rather just go live with my enemy. Like, wow, like, that's bad. Here's part of the problem with that. The minute we start getting any kind of idea about how we should be operating our life, you remember, the, you remember our life, the one we gave to Jesus? As soon as we think we should be the, the one who operates the life that we gave to Jesus, hey, Jesus, you know what, can I borrow that? Because like, things are getting a little sketchy under your watch. Maybe I'm going to do it myself. As soon as we get into that place, instantly what we find out is like, we have really good ideas. Oh, you know what we should do? We should hide among the Philistines. Really? The Philistines? So you know what he does? David goes. He goes and he hides among the Philistines. Well, you can only imagine how excited the king of Philistia was to have David. So you're him. Yeah, I'm him. I'm like, you're the guy. Like, Saul has killed his thousands, David is ten thousands. I know the song. You're the guy. Yeah, I'm the guy. And you just want to bring your family and you want to hide them all here because the king of Israel is trying to kill you? He's like, yeah. What do I get out of it? David said, hired, hired gun. He said, really? You know, you're the one that killed our best guy, right? Yeah. Sorry about that. I was just a kid. Yeah, I mean, sure. I'll give you a place. You bring your people. You stay. You wander off. You go attack these other tribes. You keep them at bay from the Philistine, from the Philistine, from the Philistine area. And, then, and if you do that, we'll leave you alone. David said, no trouble. I'll show you what I can do. And David takes his 600 men and they plow through the Philistine enemies repeatedly. And on a regular basis, the king would say, hey, David, where are you coming from? And David would be coming in, hauling this gold, hauling all these slaves, hauling all this, all this loot. And they would drop it off there and, and, uh, to the king, Achish. They would drop it off. The king would say, where you been today? He says, oh, I was in Negev today. He says, good find, good kills, good loot. Keep it up. At the same time, Saul is in a little bit of a panic. Because the Philistines decide, you know, they don't have David. And we need some trade routes through the middle of Israel. And Saul is from day to day, whatever. Maybe he's tough, maybe he's not, maybe he's fearful, maybe he's brave. We don't know, but uh, let's assemble and let's go to war with Israel. So they begin to assemble to go to war with Israel. And now David is a part of the Philistine army. Saul's in a panic. Saul does something really weird. You see, there had been this time period where there was witches there were these warlocks, and there were these fortune tellers, and there were these palm readers, and there were these soothsayers and conjurers of spirits, and they all lived in the land. But under Samuel and Saul, most of the witches had been expelled. But Saul's desperate, and Samuel's dead, and David's gone, and there's not much of a spiritual base left to Israel. And so Saul does the weird 
the weirdest thing he can think to do. And he goes and he finds a witch, the witch of Endor. And he pulls her in and he says, I need to talk to you about something. He disguises himself so she doesn't know he's the king. And he says, I need you to summon somebody for me. Call them from the ground. She said, you know, we're not supposed to do that, right? He says, trust me, it's going to be okay. I, this is weird. I pledge this to you in the name of Yahweh. She says, okay. She says, who do you want to? Who do you want to conjure? He says, uh, there used to be an old man named Samuel. Could you call him up? Got that number? She starts doing her seance or whatever it is. And then she, see, she says, I see a man, an old man with a robe. That's about as far as the description goes. <laughs> Saul says, yeah, that's him. That's it. I mean, it's scripture. I see an old man. He's wearing a robe. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's him. Only explains, let's see what uh, every person in history at that point. And she says, you're right. It is him. And here's what he says. Why did you conjure me from the ground? You know you're not supposed to do that, right? And Saul says to this Spirit, I don't know that I believe that this was Samuel. I think it's something like a familiar spirit. Something that some entity that knew who Samuel was is pretending to be Samuel. I don't know. Samuel says, I mean Saul says to this spirit, Samuel, everybody's gone, nobody's here. I don't know what to do. I'm scared and the Philistines are coming. And he says, oh, you're going to get it. You are going to get it. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. But what do you see? And the woman said, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. What is his form? He's an old man. He's wrapped in a robe. Saul knew that was Samuel, and he bowed his face to the ground. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me, and he no longer answers me, either through prophets or through dreams. Therefore, I called on you to make known to me what I should do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord's departed from you and has become your adversary? No hope left for you, Saul. You did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. It always goes back to that for Saul. I ask you to do one thing, wipe out the Amalekites. And what would you do? You kept their king, you kept their goods, you kept their, their livestock, you did it all. You kept their gold. I told you to wipe out. The commanders of the Philistine army go to their king and they say, hey, listen, this David guy is, uh, who's working with us, like he's a killer, absolute killer. There's no question about it. We know the song. Saul's killed his thousands, David is ten. Like, we know the song. Like, this is him. But yo, he ain't a part of us. We want him gone. 
the king pleads with his commanders. Like, hold on, hold on, hold on. He's a killer. They're like, no doubt. But he has put his hand against us. We don't want him here. King's in a hard spot. He goes to David and he says, all right, listen, I got to talk to you about this. And David's like, sure, what do you, what do you want? Where do you, where do you want me to go? Like, my, my guys are ready. You know, guns are sighted in. Like, we're ready. Sword sharpened, ready to go to battle. He said, yeah, that's the thing. Uh, my guys, uh, they don't want to work with you no more. What do you mean? Like, they don't, they don't want you around. Like, they want you out. He's like, what did I do? He said, you didn't do anything. It's not, it's not me. It's not me. It's the men. You know, the line sounds familiar, right? That's Saul's line. God, you know, I was going to wipe out the Amalekites, but see, it wasn't me. It was the guys. It was the other guys. It's always cowardice kings. It's always cowardice kings. Men, be warned. It's easy to be a cowardice king. Oh, so easy to be a cowardice king. It's easy to just fade in with the group. It's so easy to fade in with the group. Well, the guys are doing it. This is what we do on Wednesdays. It's poker night. It's what we do at the country club. So easy. It's just too easy. Easy to be a cowardice king. Here he is getting pushed around by his commanders. You're the king, homie. Like jerk slack. You know, jerk slack. And line those dudes out. You're the king. Can't do it. This would be the second, third time David's had to live underneath some regime that's just got a weak leader. He lands in this spot again. He says, fine. So he leaves. Philistines roll out and they go to battle with Israel. It's almost serendipitous, isn't it? It's almost as if God made this thing happen this way because David did not need to be among the ranks of the Philistines going to war with Israel. That is not a good place. He does not need that on his conscience. He does not need that in his life. He does not need that in his history. There does not need to be one single bit of David's efforts that have moved in there and somehow allowed him to become the king. It's just so coincidental almost. The Philistines roll out to go to battle with Israel. David and his men, they leave that area and they go somewhere else. And in the meantime, while he and his men are off in this other place, outside of the Philistine area, you know who shows up? The Amalekites. This is the very same people who were supposed to be wiped out by Saul, this, they show up and they take every single one of the soldiers' wives, kids, gold, livestock, and carry it off. Israel and the Philistines go to battle and the Philistines dominate the Israelites and they're wiped out in war. The Amalekites, while David and his 600 men are gone, the Amalekites come in, raid that camp, and take everything that David has. When David returns to his place, 
to his camp. He finds it's all been burned to the ground and everything's been taken. His wives, their kids, the wives of his men, the food, all the luggage, all the supplies. But this is what happens when you go hiding all your pain in places you're not supposed to hide your pain. I mean, I'm guilty of it too. Where do you hide your pain? Do you hide your pain in peacekeeping? Just back yourself all the way up, get rid of your own opinions, just do whatever you need to do so that she doesn't lose her mind? Is it in drinking? Is it in friends? Is it in porn? Is it in relationships? Where do you hide your pain? David has hid his pain in some places that he shouldn't have hidden it. And everything's come for him. He's been wiped out. David goes to the priest of his camp and he says, I want to talk to you. I want the ephod. This is the, I need the emblems. I need that robe you're wearing. I need you to come with me. We need to inquire of God. Do we need to go after these Amalekites, these raiders, these this rogue group and go get our stuff back. What does God want now? See, there's a good move. He should have thought about that in the beginning, but he didn't, but that's okay. Like, we're there now. And so he asked the priest, and the priest says, the Lord says, go, surely you will return with everything. And David and his forces mount up, all 600, and they go after the Amalekites. And when they find the Amalekites, you know what they do? Wipe them out. Take care of them completely. There's only 400 of them who escape, but they're on camel. Not on foot. They escape, 400 of them. They are wiped out. David got back his wives. The men got back their wives. All the gold. They took everything back that they had before. There was zero loss. This is where we find David now. David sighed a breath of relief. For the first time and as long as he could remember, there was something akin to joy, a serenity of sorts. It was as if the fog had lifted. Something had shifted. He could even tell it in the eyes of his men who were smiling and laughing. Much deserved, he thought. After so many years of living on the run, hiding in the desert, the mountains, the caves, and even among the, the enemy, much deserved. David could sense God's pleasure in the slaughtering of the Amalekites in the side of Israel for centuries, but no longer. It had been three full days of celebration and eating like kings. The spoils of the war were a source of respite to their tired bodies and their worn out minds. Each soldier he passed bowed his head low and greeted him with a tone of thankfulness. Captain, they had all heard the legend of David's military prowess, but most of these men had never served in any military capacity prior to joining David. Some would say that is precisely why they honored him in such high regard. He had made men of them. They didn't fight for him. They fought with him. His pain was theirs and theirs was his. That was the spirit that fell over the entire camp, a spirit of camaraderie. That's what David was feeling, the closest thing to peace 
that any of them had experienced in years. One should always revel in such times as this. Moments like these are few. Much of life is pain, inconvenience, and complication. So when there is an occasion to drop the sword and the shield, to rest weary legs and arms, the warrior must then engage in celebration with the same fervor and tenacity that he once fought. Like most military men, once the fighting is done, the adrenaline gone, and the clanging of swords goes silent, these times can be most difficult. The quiet conjures up emotions that otherwise stay repressed. David's thoughts drifted to those he loved. His father, his brothers, his family, but mostly, mostly to Jonathan. He so desired to share this victory with his friend. It had been quite some time since he had last seen him. Much had changed since Jonathan had secretly came to David in the desert of Ziph. There was so much he wished to tell him. Jonathan's love and loyalty to David had sustained him in all of his darkest hours. Suddenly a beleaguering insight came over David. In all their years together, Jonathan had always been the one initiating the covenants. He was always the first to express his loyalty and love. He was always there for David. He had so much to thank Jonathan for, yet he had never voiced it. Not like he should have. The momentary regret quickly turned to the future. He wouldn't let the opportunity pass by again. Jonathan would know of David's deep appreciation for him. What would it be like to sit and talk about their lives, their families, their battles, and their joys, David wondered. They had never had the luxury of a small talk, he and Jonathan. Their every meeting centered on David's survival, not the jovial, not the simple, not the common. Oh, how he looked forward to telling Jonathan how much he meant to him. Jonathan once told David, someday you'll be the king and I'll be at your side. David longed for those days. He daydreamed about the stories they would tell each other and their children. Stories about how they met in the valley of Elon, how they became family and how just then a watchman's horn bellowed over the camp. Every soldier reached for his sword, snapping them from their conversations into attention. Somebody was approaching Seconds later, a man, tattered and bleeding, appeared. His clothes were torn, his body gaunt. It was clear that he posed no threat. His only possession was this thin, misshapen bag that was slung over his shoulder. Every man relaxed, but watched him closely. He stumbled toward David and fell to the ground. Where have you come from, David asked. From the Israelite camp, he stuttered, I, I, I escaped, I'm, I'm the only one. David's, David's stomach sank. What happened? He asked. The tattered man spoke. All of Israel fled from the Philistines. Many fell and died, and pausing to catch his breath, and Saul and Jonathan were killed too. David thought to himself, there would have been hundreds, maybe thousands of dead men. How could this man be sure Saul and Jonathan were both dead? skeptical eyes, David asked, how do you know that for certain? 
Because I was there, the man replied. You were there with Saul, with Jonathan? David interrogated. I was, replied the man. I, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul. He was leaning on his spear. There were Philistines, and they were all starting to surround him. And then he called to me, and, he, and, and I asked, I said, what can I do for you? Then he asked me who I was and where I was from, and I told him that I was an Amalekite. Then he told me to kill him, so I, so I stood over him, and I killed him. I could see that his wounds were fatal. That he wasn't going to make it. Hiding his hand into the bag that was now lying on the ground and then withdrawing it quickly, he continued, So I took the king's crown and golden armband and I brought them here to you. David covered his eyes. Desperately wishing the man would have been brandishing a blade or any other weapon, such an attempt on his life would have been far greater than this reality. He knew the crown well. He knew that it was Saul's. He tore his clothes, fell to his knees, he and all of his men, and they mourned. It was true. Saul and Jonathan were both dead. Oh, how quickly the spirit of joy and camaraderie took flight. A buzzard's hall of dark sorrow now circled overhead, blocking out any ray of hope. David and his men wept and fasted until the evening. It was enough that Samuel was gone. But with Saul and Jonathan dead, what would come of the house of Israel? What would come of the army of the Lord? David wondered to himself. Godly men have always found tribal life to be the only pathway towards civil society. No man has ever been strong enough for long enough to accomplish much on his own. And Saul was proof of that. And although David had experienced great betrayal at the hands of the kingdom, specifically King Saul, he was still that same harp-plucking shepherd that charged into the valley of Elah to silence that coarse-mouthed uh, uh, coarse godless Philistine that cursed his king, his country, his brother's army, and his God. Nothing had changed. He still had great love for Israel and Judah. He still had reverence for the army of the Lord, and he still bestowed honor on the office of the king because the king was God's anointed. And all the years that Saul had pursued him, and after every attempt Saul had made on David's life, he never once lifted his hand against Saul. Rather, David returned blessing for cursing. If there was one thing that the Lord had shown him in all those years, it was this. God brings about his will in his time. If anyone ever had reason to take Saul's life, it was David. And if David could restrain himself, then who was this Amalekite to dare take the life of God's anointed? As the sun set behind the distant hills, David's anger began to rise. He called for that dismal messenger, and he was thrown down at David's feet. Where are you from? He asked. The man quickly replied, I'm the son of an alien and an Amalekite. A fact that David had forgotten amidst the sadness and the shock and a fact that the messenger should have kept to himself. Through clenched teeth, David fired off another question, one he already knew the answer to. Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David's men knew what was next. They had personally heard this same dissertation many times before. The Amalekites had never cared 
who God was or who his anointed was. They were a scavenger tribe in David's mind, ruthless and in need of obliteration. What Saul could not finish, David had no trouble completing. They had joined the middle way, land and food from the Hebrews. It wasn't a question. It was a statement of explanation. You should have been afraid to lift your hand against God's anointed. Before the man could utter a word, David crouched down before the man, wiping the dust from the crown and the golden armband, placing it back into the sack. Now, I level with the man holding back that storm of fury inside of him momentarily, he spoke with eerie gentility and finality. Your blood is on your own head. Your mouth betrayed your life when you said, I killed God's anointed. He then stood upright and turned to walk away. Speaking over his shoulder to the guard who was standing watch over the man, he ordered, cut him down. As David departed to his tent, he heard a sword shriek in excitement as it left the soldier's scabbard. Within seconds, the Amalekite messenger was a lifeless pile of bones and skin and guilt. On a makeshift table, sawn logs, David pulled the crown and the armband from the bag. Setting them before him, he sat down and stared at them, and he began to hum a tune, a heartfelt but somber tune. You see, words only ever came easy to David with the presence of music. You see, the heart speaks in melody, in measure, in rhyme. All the reminiscing of Saul and Jonathan forced him back to a familiar place like many times before when he found himself overwhelmed, fearful, or even thankful. He would dive into the belly of his despair and every time he would emerge with a song, it wasn't infrequent that David would detach from those around him and plunge into the forest or the cave or upon a rock overlooking a meadow and begin to play and sing. It was a refining process like that of silver or gold. There he would go and heat up the lump of mixed metal and emotion until they separated into layers. He would then skim the slag, the anger, the hurt from his soul and search for the purest elements that existed inside of him until he had the right words and the right music and the right heart, a heart like God's. The songs that he created in the desert, in the dark or in the valley, would soon climb to the summit of his being to be declared. Those who knew David came to count on these songs. They were a sign that he had been with God. It was the closing of an old chapter and the opening of a new one. You see, despondency drove him into these deep recesses of anguish, but something always happened when he was there. The men that surrounded David always afforded him any amount of time that he needed because they knew when he did finally appear again, he would be whole and better than before. And so would they. It was through these songs that he turned this tribe of discontented, indebted and distressed stragglers into stalwart warriors. They trusted his intuition because they had experienced it so many times before. Night fell over the camp 
And though they all tried to sleep, they couldn't help but listen to the tearful cry of the harp that cried out to the night sky note by note. That song would become his sword. When morning came, the warm smell of distant burning logs meandered through the camp. In customary fashion, David's men came from their tents dressed and battle fit. On a low-lying plateau outside the camp, a fire burned. They could see the outline of their captain staring into the flames. The army took shape, falling into formation behind him without a word. David turned to face them. His gaze showered over the 600 men slowly, taking them in one by one. His countenance was bright. He didn't bear the marks of a man plagued with sadness, as one would expect. His eyes neither looked tired nor bloodshot, but rather refreshed. His head was lifted high. His chin was lifted high. It was apparent to them that whatever beasts of grief or serpents of sorrow or doleful devils he had wrestled with while they slept, they had been destroyed. The twilight sky was turning purple behind him. And with perfect human fragility and power borrowed from on high, David broke the silence. Oh, how the mighty have fallen, the jewel of the nation, Jonathan, the great gazelle of Israel, now lays slain upon our mountain. Tell not this story in Ashkelon, and sing it not in Gath, lest the daughters of the Philistines hear it and celebrate, and all of them become glad. Gilboa, may you dry up, may you never see rain or dew, Cursed be your fields and all of your yields and your grain offerings be through. For once the shield of a warrior, oil rubbed, now rust in the ground. For the sword of Saul and Jonathan's bow never again bring forth their sound. In life they were gracious and loved. Even in death their commitment remained. Swift as eagles, sharp as his talons, and fierce as the lion's mane. And then turning to the ridge where the women of the camp had congregated to overhear David's word, David points and he spoke, If the daughters of Israel must sing, let it be for the life of King Saul, who clothed you in scarlet, adorning your garments with gold from his enemy's hall. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Jonathan the gazelle, my brother, for you I grieve dearer to me than a mother, a wife, or a lover. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Israel's great weapons of relent. Unsatisfied was never your sword. As David finished, he pointed to the ridge above. Turn and look, he said. They glanced up to see their wives standing overhead. Then David said, Teach this song to your sons. When you teach them to swing a blade, teach this to your sons. When you teach them to knock an arrow and draw a bow, teach this to your sons. And when you traverse Mount Gilboa, you sing. And when you hunt the hind and the gazelle, teach this to your sons. And when they ask you, Father, tell me a story. Tell them of Saul, who was swift but regal. Tell them of Jonathan, who was a lion on the battlefield, but a shepherd to me. Teach this to your sons. 
They understood David's lamenting eulogy for Jonathan. They too would curse Gilboa for playing any role in the death, even if it were just the feet, the ground beneath his feet. As for Gath and Ashkelon and Philistia, they would do well to never utter Jonathan's name. For he had single-handedly carved apart more of them than all of their champions combined. He was swift and fierce, but he was also loyal. His spirit was as gazelle-like as his footing. Proven by how carefully he walked that thin line between being a friend of David and a dutiful son to Saul. He was a friend. He was a good friend to David. He was a brother, and one who continually reminded him of God's plan for him to someday reign as king. David owed Jonathan everything. They all owed Jonathan everything. However, it was the adorning words concerning David's love for Saul that caused hesitation. They wondered to themselves, how could he love somebody who never loved him? How could he repeatedly place his life on the line for one who schemed against him? Even lunatics, madmen, slaves would dare not risk life and breath for one as untrustworthy as Saul. For David was harp and devotion, while Saul was spear and jealousy. Had David forgotten what a thistle Saul was in his sandal? What a burden he was on his back. How he had stolen away two of his wives and even attempted to kill his best friend, his own son. No. How could he forget any of those things? How could any of us forget anything like that? He could not forget it, nor did he want to. You see, that's the great secret of having a heart like God's. In every trial or travail, set up or set back, David understood, and if God allowed it, then it must be for some refining purpose. In David's mind, Saul was chosen by God. Not just for Israel, but for him. Saul was the catalyst that kept David chasing after God. Saul was the blacksmith's forge, the smelter's pot, the ironworker's fire. Only a weak and one-dimensional man comes to expect. Only a weak and one-dimensional man comes to expect only a primrose path from the hand of God. It is the man who is strong of mind and spirit that finds in his troubles the constant guiding voice of the good shepherd. For inside of every man there are maladjusted instincts that can only be expelled with external forces. But once he is emptied of all of his illusions of control, his addictions to pleasure, his cravings for comfort, then and only then is he ready to rise. You see, a king's crown is, is a king's crown is held up by character, not by how strong of a brow he has. Kings crown kings. So once the king of all heaven and earth hollows out a man of dust, only then is he fit for a crown. 
Therefore, if David will sing of his thankfulness for Saul, then they would too. For it was Saul that had driven David into the desert. And it was in the desert where they met him. It was Saul that gave them David, the greatest man that they had ever come to know, the man that had turned them into men, mighty men. Therefore, if David will sing of his thankfulness for Saul, then they would too.